Chapter 10 of Volume 1 of The Mysterious Island. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim D. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Translated by William Henry Giles Kingston. Volume 1, Chapter 10. In a few minutes, the three hunters were before a crackling fire. The captain and the reporter were there. Pencroft looked from one to the other, his capybara in his hand, without saying a word. Well, yes, my brave fellow, cried the reporter. Fire, real fire, which will roast this splendid pig perfectly, and we will have a feast presently. But who lighted it? asked Pencroft. The sun. Gideon Spilett was quite right in his reply. It was the sun which had furnished the heat which so astonished Pencroft. The sailor could scarcely believe his eyes, and he was so amazed that he did not think of questioning the engineer. "'Had you a burning glass, sir?' asked Herbert of Harding. "'No, my boy,' replied he, "'but I made one,' and he showed the apparatus which served for a burning glass. It was simply two glasses which he had taken from his own and the reporter's watches. Having filled them with water and rendered their edges adhesive by means of a little clay, he thus fabricated a regular burning glass, which, concentrating the solar rays on some very dry moss, soon caused it to blaze. The sailor considered the apparatus. Then he gazed at the engineer without saying a word. Only a look plainly expressed his opinion that if Cyrus Harding was not a magician, he was certainly no ordinary man. At last, speech returned to him, and he cried, Note that, Mr. Spilett, note that down on your paper. It is noted, replied the reporter. Then Neb, helping him, the seaman arranged the spit, and the capybara, properly cleaned, was soon roasting like a suckling pig before a crackling fire. The chimneys had again become more habitable, not only because the passages were warmed by the fire, but because the partitions of wood and mud had been re-established. It was evident that the engineer and his companions had employed their day well. Cyrus Harding had almost entirely recovered his strength, and had proved it by climbing to the upper plateau. From this point his eye, accustomed to estimate heights and distances, was fixed for a long time on the cone, the summit of which he wished to reach the next day. The mountain, situated about six miles to the southwest, appeared to him to measure 3,500 feet above the level of the sea. Consequently, the gaze of an observer posted on its summit would extend over a radius of at least 50 miles. Therefore, it was probable that Harding could easily solve the question of island or continent, to which he attached so much importance. They supped capitally. The flesh of the capybara was declared excellent. The sargassum and the almonds of the stone pine completed the repast, during which the engineer spoke little. He was preoccupied with the projects for the next day. Once or twice, Pencroft gave forth some ideas upon what it would be best to do, but Cyrus Harding, who was evidently a methodical mind, only shook his head without uttering a word. Tomorrow, he repeated, 
we shall know what we have to depend upon, and we will act accordingly. The meal ended, fresh armfuls of wood were thrown on the fire, and the inhabitants of the chimneys, including the faithful top, were soon buried in a deep sleep. No incident disturbed this peaceful night, and the next day, the 29th of March, fresh and active, they awoke, ready to undertake the excursion which must determine their fate. All was ready for the start. The remains of the capybara would be enough to sustain Harding and his companions for at least twenty-four hours. Besides, they hoped to find more food on the way, as the glasses had been returned to the watches of the engineer and the reporter, Pencroft burned a little linen to serve as tinder. As to flint, that would not be wanting in these regions of plutonic origin. It was half-past seven in the morning when the explorers, armed with sticks, left the chimneys. Following Pencroft's advice, it appeared best to take the road already traversed through the forest and to return by another route. It was also the most direct way to reach the mountain. They turned the south angle and followed the left bank of the river, which was abandoned at the point where it formed an elbow toward the southwest. The path, already trodden under the evergreen trees, was found, and at nine o'clock Cyrus Harding and his companions had reached the western border of the forest. The ground, till then, very little undulated, boggy at first, dry and sandy afterwards, had a gentle slope, which ascended from the shore toward the interior of the country. A few very timid animals were seen under the forest trees. Top quickly started them, but his master soon called him back, for the time had not come to commence hunting. That would be attended to later. The engineer was not a man who would allow himself to be diverted from his fixed idea. It might even have been said that he did not observe the country at all, either in its configuration or in its natural productions his great aim being to climb the mountain before him, and therefore straight toward it he went. At ten o'clock a halt of a few minutes was made. On leaving the forest, the mountain system of the country appeared before the explorers. The mountain was composed of two cones, the first, truncated at a height of about 2,500 feet, was sustained by buttresses, which appeared to branch out like the talons of an immense claw set on the ground, between these were narrow valleys bristling with trees, the last clumps of which rose to the top of the lowest cone. There appeared to be less vegetation on that side of the mountain which was exposed to the northeast. The deep fissures could be seen which, no doubt, were watercourses. On the first cone rested a second, slightly rounded and placed a little on one side, like a great rounded hat cocked over the ear. A Scotchman would have said, his bonnet has a thakt achi. It appeared formed of bare earth, here and there pierced by reddish rocks. They wished to reach the second cone, and, proceeding along the ridge of the spurs, seemed to be the best way by which to gain it. We are on volcanic ground, Cyrus Harding had said, and his companions following him began to ascend by degrees on the back of a spur, which, by a winding and consequently more inaccessible path, joined the first plateau. The ground had evidently been convulsed by subterranean force. Here and there, stray blocks, numerous debris of basalt and pumice stone were met with, 
in isolated groups, rose fir trees, which, some hundred feet lower, at the bottom of the narrow gorges, formed massive shades almost impenetrable to the sun's rays. During the first part of the ascent, Herbert remarked on the footprints, which indicated the recent passage of large animals. Perhaps these beasts will not let us pass willingly, said Pencroft. Well, replied the reporter, who had already hunted the tiger in India and the lion in Africa, we shall soon learn how successfully to encounter them. But in the meantime, we must be upon our guard. They ascended but slowly. The distance increased by detours and obstacles which could not be surmounted directly was long. Sometimes, too, the ground suddenly fell, and they found themselves on the edge of a deep chasm which they had to go round. Thus, in retracing their steps, so as to find some practicable path, much time was employed and fatigue undergone for nothing. At twelve o'clock, when the small band of adventurers halted for breakfast at the foot of a large group of firs, near a little stream which fell in cascades, they found themselves still halfway from the first plateau, which most probably they would not reach till nightfall. From this point the view of the sea was much extended, but on the right the high promontory prevented their seeing whether there was land beyond it. On the left, the site extended several miles to the north, but on the northwest, at the point occupied by the explorers, it was cut short by the ridge of a fantastically shaped spur, which formed a powerful support of the central cone. At one o'clock, the ascent was continued. They slanted more toward the southwest and again entered among thick bushes. There, under the shade of the trees, fluttered several couples of gallinaceae, belonging to the pheasant species. They were tragopons, ornamented by pendant skin which hangs over their throats and by two small round horns planted behind the eyes. Among these birds, which were about the size of a fowl, the female was uniformly brown, while the male was gorgeous in his red plumage decorated with white spots. Gideon Spilett, with a stone cleverly and vigorously thrown, killed one of these tragopons, on which Pencroft, made hungry by the fresh air, had cast greedy eyes. After leaving the region of bushes, the party, assisted by resting on each other's shoulders, climbed for about a hundred feet up a steep acclivity, and reached a level place with very few trees, where the soil appeared volcanic. It was necessary to ascend by zigzags to make the slope more easy, for it was very steep, and the footing, being exceedingly precarious, required the greatest caution. Neb and Herbert took the lead, Pencroft the rear, the captain and the reporter between them. The animals which frequented these heights, and there were numerous traces of them, must necessarily belong to those races of sure foot and supple spine, chamois or goat. Several were seen, but these were not the name Pencroft gave them, for all of a sudden, sheep, he shouted. All stopped about fifty feet from a half a dozen animals of a large size, with strong horns bent back and flattened toward the point, with a woolly fleece hidden under a long silky hair of a tawny color. They were not ordinary sheep, but a species usually found in the mountainous regions of the temperate zone, to which Herbert gave the name of the Musman. 
They have legs and chops, asked the sailor. Yes, replied Herbert. Well, then they are sheep, said Pencroft. The animals, motionless among the blocks of basalt, gazed with an astonished eye, as if they saw human bipeds for the first time. Then their fears suddenly aroused, they disappeared bounding over the rocks. Goodbye, till we meet again, cried Pencroft, as he watched them, in such a comical tone that Cyrus Harding, Gideon Spilett, Herbert, and Neb could not help laughing. The ascent was continued. Here and there were traces of lava. Sulfur springs sometimes stopped their way, and they had to go around them. In some places the sulfur had formed crystals, among other substances, such as whitish cinders made from an infinity of little feldspar crystals. In approaching the first plateau formed by the truncating of the lower cone, the difficulties of the ascent were very great. Toward four o'clock the extreme zone of the trees had been passed. There only remained here and there a few twisted, stunted pines, which must have had a hard life in resisting at this altitude the high winds from the open sea. Happily for the engineer and his companions, the weather was beautiful, the atmosphere tranquil, for a high breeze at an elevation of 3,000 feet would have hindered their proceedings. The purity of the sky at the zenith was felt through the transparent air. A perfect calm reigned around them. They could not see the sun, then hid by the vast screen of the upper cone, which masked the half-horizon of the west, and whose enormous shadow, stretching to the shore, increased as the radiant luminary sank in its diurnal course. Vapor mist, rather than clouds, began to appear in the east, and assume all the prismatic colors under the influence of the solar rays. Five hundred feet only separated the explorers from the plateau which they wished to reach, so as to establish there an encampment for the night. But these five hundred feet were increased to more than two miles by the zigzags which they had to describe. The soil, as it were, slid under their feet. The slope often presented such an angle that they slipped when the stones worn by the air did not give a sufficient support. Evening came on by degrees, and it was almost night when Cyrus Harding and his companions, much fatigued by an ascent of seven hours, arrived at the plateau of the first cone. It was then necessary to prepare an encampment and to restore their strength by eating first and sleeping afterwards. This second stage of the mountain rose on a base of rocks, among which it would be easy to find a retreat. Fuel was not abundant. However, a fire could be made by means of the moss and dry brushwood, which covered certain parts of the plateau. While the sailor was preparing his hearth with stones, which he put to this use, Neb and Herbert occupied themselves with getting a supply of fuel. They soon returned with a load of brushwood. The steel was struck, the burnt linen caught the sparks of flint, and, under Neb's breath, a crackling fire showed itself in a few minutes under the shelter of the rocks. Their object in lighting a fire was only to enable them to withstand the cold temperature of the night, as it was not employed in cooking the bird, which Neb kept for the next day. The remains of the capybara and some dozens of the stone pine almonds formed their supper. It was not half past six when all was finished. Cyrus Harding then thought of exploring, in the half-light, 
the large circular layer which supported the upper cone of the mountain. Before taking any rest, he wished to know if it was possible to get around the base of the cone in the case of its sides being too steep, and its summit being inaccessible. This question preoccupied him, for it was possible that, from the way the hat inclined, that is to say, toward the north, the plateau was not practicable. Also, if the summit of the mountain could not be reached on one side, and if, on the other, they could not get round the base of the cone, it would be impossible to survey the western part of the country, and their object in making the ascent would, in part, be altogether unattained. The engineer, accordingly, regardless of fatigue, leaving Pencroft and Neb to arrange the beds, and Gideon Spilett to note the incidents of the day, began to follow the edge of the plateau, going toward the north. Herbert accompanied him. The night was beautiful and still. The darkness was not yet deep. Cyrus Harding and the boy walked near each other without speaking. In some places the plateau opened before them, and they passed without hindrance. In others, obstructed by rocks, there was only a narrow path in which two persons could not walk abreast. After a walk of twenty minutes, Cyrus Harding and Herbert were obliged to stop. From this point the slope of the two cones became one. No shoulder here separated the two parts of the mountain. The slope being inclined almost seventy degrees, the path became impracticable. But if the engineer and the boy were obliged to give up thoughts of following a circular direction, in return an opportunity was given for ascending the cone. In fact, before them opened a deep hollow. It was the rugged mouth of the crater, by which the eruptive liquid matter had escaped at the periods when the volcano was still in activity. Hardened lava had crusted scoria formed a sort of natural staircase of large steps, which would greatly facilitate the ascent to the summit of the mountain. Harding took all this in at a glance, and without hesitating, followed by the lad, he entered the enormous chasm in the midst of an increasing obscurity, there was still a height of a thousand feet to overcome. Would the interior acclivities of the crater be practicable? It would soon be seen. The persevering engineer resolved to continue his ascent until he was stopped. Happily, these acclivities wound up the interior of the volcano and favored their ascent. As to the volcano itself, it could not be doubted that it was completely extinct. No smoke escaped from its sides, not a flame could be seen in the dark hollows, not a roar, not a mutter, no trembling even issued from this black well, which perhaps reached far into the bowels of the earth. The atmosphere inside the crater was filled with no sulfurous vapor. It was more than the sleep of a volcano. It was its complete extinction. Cyrus Harding's attempt would succeed. Little by little, Herbert and he, climbing up the sides of the interior, saw the crater widen above their heads. The radius of this circular portion of the sky, framed by the edge of the cone, increased obviously. At each step, as it were, that the explorers made, fresh stars entered the field of their vision. The magnificent constellations of the southern sky shone resplendently. At the zenith glittered the splendid Antares, in the Scorpion, and not far was Alpha Centauri, which is believed to be the nearest star to the terrestrial globe. 
Then, as the crater widened, Fomalhaut of the fish, the southern triangle, and lastly, nearly at the Antarctic pole, the glittering southern cross, which replaces the polar star of the northern hemisphere. It was nearly eight o'clock when Cyrus Harding and Herbert set foot on the highest ridge of the mountain at the summit of the cone. It was then perfectly dark, and their gaze could not extend over a radius of two miles. Did the sea surround this unknown land, or was it connected in the west with some continent of the Pacific? It could not yet be made out. Toward the west, a cloudy belt, clearly visible in, at the horizon, increased the gloom, and the eye could not discover if the sky and water were blended together in the same circular line. But at one point of the horizon, a vague light suddenly appeared, which descended slowly in proportion as the cloud mounted to the zenith. It was the slender crescent moon, already almost disappearing, but its light was sufficient to show clearly the horizontal line, then detached from the cloud, and the engineer could see its reflection trembling for an instant on a liquid surface. Cyrus Harding seized the lad's hand, and, in a grave voice, an island, said he, at the moment when the lunar crescent disappeared beneath the waves. End of chapter 10, recording by Jim D.